Well, Merry Christmas, Northview. It's so good to be here with you, seriously. Sandy and I have had the opportunity and privilege to speak in churches, several churches around the country, but I can tell you, there's nothing like preaching at Northview Church. You guys are an incredible group of people, and I love you dearly. We've missed you. Um, in some ways, it feels like, a, somebody was asking me last service, in some ways it feels like it was just a week ago, in other ways it feels like it's been forever, but I love, I love being here. And I'm excited about Christmas. I hope you're getting excited about How many of you are excited about Christmas? How many of you are trying your best to get there? Yeah, I get that. I get that. But I'm really excited about Christmas, and I'm anxious to jump into this message today. I, I love uh, the spirit of Christmas. I love the music of Christmas, and I love uh, talking about Christmas and the incarnation. So I was honored and thrilled that CJ asked me to be a part of this series so let me pray, and I'm gonna jump right in. Father, <clears throat> I just thank and praise you for your faithfulness. God, you're an amazing God, and what an incredible privilege and opportunity it is to be able to gather together with the body of Christ and just to worship you. We have sensed your presence here in this place as we have worshiped this morning. And now, God, I just ask that you would just continue to bless Northview Church. I pray, dear God, that you'd continue to bless CJ as he leads and directs this church as well as the staff that follows him. And I just, uh, uh, I pray also, Lord, for every church throughout the community that's preaching and teaching the love of Jesus. Thanks, God. You're the reason for the season. You're the reason we celebrate this Christmas. So I just praise you and ask now that as we get into your word, open up our eyes and ears. In Jesus' name, amen. So <clears throat> did you hear about the lady that got on the bus with her baby? And as she got on the bus, the bus driver said, lady, that is the ugliest baby I've ever seen in my life. Well, you can imagine, she was so hurt and offended and she stormed at the back of the bus where there was a guy sitting there. And she said, that bus driver hurt me and offended me. And he said, well, did you tell him? No, you need to go back up to the front and you need to give him a piece of your mind. Here, I'll hold your monkey, you go on and go on up there. <laughs> How many know it's okay to laugh in church? Yeah, some of you are going, oh, I don't know. But it is. That's the reason I love the series Chosen. You know, I've talked about this before, and I've encouraged you, if you haven't seen it, to watch it. It's absolutely the best story of the life of Christ that you'll find on television of any decade. And why is that so? Because they make Jesus so down to earth. They make him so real. You know, he laughs with the disciples, he cuts up and jokes with them. I love it. I believe that's why Jesus was popular when he walked the earth. I believe that's why people wanted to follow him. He was down to earth. You know, when someone describes you as down to earth, it's a great compliment. Well, what do they even mean when they say that to you? It means that you're not puffed up with pride or, or self-absorbed, but instead you're reliable and you're real. You're unpretentious and you're humble. So it's safe to say Jesus, I believe, without a shadow of a doubt, was very down to earth when he walked the earth. This guy, people thought, this guy gets me. He understands me. He knows what I'm going through. I know that my mind goes to strange places, but when I think of Jesus being down to earth, I wonder, do you think he ever sneezed? You think he ever belched? Okay, I'll go there. Do you think he ever broke wind? Yes, yes, all the above, because he was a regular guy. 
I think he can, he can relate to that annoying cough you have or that constant heartburn that you're dealing with. The God of all creation, he gets me. Jesus was always trying to help them see that not only was he God, but he was a God that wanted to be in relationship with them. He was a God that absolutely loved them. Even through, even through healing, there was a message. You know, we look back and we read the Gospels and we, we see some odd things that Jesus did that just don't make sense to us, but it's because not only was he wanting to do a supernatural work of healing a person, but he was also sending them a message. The, the best example I can give you, there were three times in Scripture where he spit on people. In Mark chapter eight, verse 23, it says, Jesus took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. Then, spitting on the man's eyes, he laid his hands on him and asked, can you see anything now? He spit in his eyes and healed him. In Mark chapter seven, he runs into a deaf man with a speech impediment, and he takes his fingers and sticks them in the man's ears and then spits on his tongue, instantly healing his hearing and his speech impediment. In John chapter nine, he, he runs into a man that needs healing and he bends down in the dirt, he spits in the dirt and makes some mud pies, puts those mud pies on the guy's eyes and heals him. Why in the world did he do that? I have no idea. <laughs> but there's all kinds of thoughts and theories. When you spit on someone, obviously we know it's an insult. But some say he was not trying to insult the person, but he was trying to insult the disease. There are others that say the contemporary Jewish rabbis of the day believed that saliva was a valid treatment for healing blindness. Whatever it was he was trying to communicate, I will promise you, every time Jesus did a healing, in the manner in which he did it, he was trying to communicate something. The message was always, the bottom line is that God loves you and wants to be in relationship with you. So yes, Jesus is down to earth. He's with you through the darkest moments of your life. He really does feel your pain. He really can relate to that temptation that you're struggling with. He is sympathetic to the hurt you feel from that broken relationship. Friends, God is near. I cannot make that statement strong enough. God is near. He's not some distant, far-off God that's unapproachable. Because if we are honest, that's the way many of us relate with him. We think that he's this God that's way off, that we know he exists, we believe that he exists, but you know, a personal relationship, we can't even really fathom that. But God is near. He wants to be in a personal, intimate relationship with you. He's just waiting. Listen, God is just waiting for us to recognize his presence in our daily lives. In fact, the Gospels all talk about this over and over again, that God is near, God is near. It's a message they wanna get home to us. An example would be the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew starts the Gospel out saying God is near, and he ends his Gospel saying God is near. Why? Because the writers wanted us to understand this. They wanted us to understand that he wants to be in a personal relationship. But we can be so self-centered, we can be so engrossed in our own lives that we oftentimes miss God. You know, several years ago, 
probably 30 years ago, actually, um, I had a friend that had brain cancer. And he got, he was not a believer and he got a very poor report. The doctors didn't, said it didn't look good at all. And his daughter was a Christian and so his daughter started asking everybody she knew to start praying for her father to be healed. Well, God healed him. Larry was supernaturally healed. The doctor said, we can't explain it, but the cancer is gone and you're healed. Well, I ran into him on the street uh, at some point after that and I said, Larry, oh man, I heard about the good news. Congratulations, I know that's exciting for you. And he goes, yeah, it's a you know, leaf, second leaf on life. And I said, you do know God stepped in and healed you, right? You do know that what has happened is that God has worked a miracle in your life. And he scoffed at me and he said, absolutely not. I do not know that and I do not believe that. I do not believe that it was a miracle from God and I, I don't even believe there is a God. And I'm thinking, seriously, you cannot see and recognize God's involvement in your life? And he's not the only one because guys, it happens all the time all around us. God is actively involved in people's life, trying to help people see. He wants to be in an intimate relationship with them and they don't see it. They don't recognize it. Listen, I believe that when a person can truly get a hold of this idea that God is near, it's a game changer. Seriously, if I said to you, how many of you believe God is near? Almost all of you would raise your hands. But you really haven't gotten a hold of it. You really haven't grabbed it in your life. When it happens, it's a spiritual aha moment. It's one of those moments where you're like, oh my gosh, I get it. He really does wanna be actively involved in my life. It is a game changer. God loves you and wants involvement every day of your life. The Bible tells us in 1 Thessalonians, the apostle Paul says, pray without ceasing. In other words, you need to learn to keep the communication lines with God open all the time. It's good that you pray when you start your day. It's good that you pray when you end your day. It's good that you pray over your meals. But that's not what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, no, you just need to keep it open. It's like if you're driving down the road and you're having a tough time at work to be able to communicate with God as you're driving down the road. You're sitting in your office having trouble with maybe a fellow worker to be able to communicate with God, to learn to be able to talk with him about anything and everything. Friends, when your relationship with God becomes real, listen to me on this, when your relationship with God becomes real, pride and insecurity will no longer be a problem for you. Because where does pride get birth? Pride gets birth when I think I gotta take care of my own issues, my own problems. You know, I'm, I'm my own man, I can do my own thing. I'll make this work or I'll make it fail, but I'm gonna be the one that makes it happen. When you begin to recognize that God has your back, when you begin to recognize that he's still on the throne, when you begin to recognize that God wants involvement in your everyday life, pride will go by the wayside. Humility will begin to take hold. Insecurity will go by the wayside. Fear and worry will be a thing of the past. Why do I need to fear? Why do I need to worry? Because I know God has my back. Listen guys, the awareness of Christ's constant presence in your life, it brings with it humility. It brings with it contentment, which is just another reason why the Christmas story is so powerful and why it's such a great illustration of the life that Christ wants for each one of us. Jesus could have come in glory and power, but instead he chose to come as a humble baby born in a barn. 
born to a lower middle-class family in a lowly town. The Christmas message is that Jesus Christ came down to earth in humility, and then he went on to live a life of humility. If you've been around Northfield a while, you've heard me say in the past that Philippians is absolutely my favorite book of the New Testament. It's a great book. It's often called the book of joy. And I would say to you that if you're discouraged or you're going through a tough time in your life, it only takes about 15, 20 minutes at best to read the book. It's a short book. But read the book of Philippians. It will lift your spirit. Philippians is the book of joy. One of the chapters, chapter two, is probably one of the most uh, powerful and well-known chapters of the New Testament. And it talks about how Christ left heaven, how he came down to earth to be spat upon, beaten, treated as dirt, killed, cursed, to have his name used as a swear word. Now, most scholars believe this passage that we're gonna look at today is actually a hymn or a poetic passage that Paul incorporated uh, into his letter to the church at Philippi. It emphasizes humility and the exaltation of Christ. Just like we do today, now think with me, just like we do today, early Christians would often use hymns or songs to emphasize something or to express their beliefs in something. We, we do the same thing. How, how many of you have ever had a song you heard on the radio and you couldn't get that thing out of your head all day long? Why? Oh, that's what it does. So that's the negative side of it. The other day I heard a song on the radio, all I want for Christmas is, to be, is a hippopotamus. I couldn't get that stupid song out of my head all day long. And singing it and Sandy gets in, she's like, what? It's like it won't go away. Well, there's a good side to that. And the good side is, is that we'll take a song like Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star and change the word to ABCs so that our kids can learn the alphabet. So we've learned that when you put something to, when you put lyrics to song, it's something that sticks with us. If I were to say, okay guys, sing with me, Jesus loves me. I wouldn't have to put the words up because 95% of you in this room could easily sing it. It's in your head, you've memorized it because we put it to song when you were a child. Well that's exactly what they did in the New Testament times. They wanted people to remember this theology. This is so important. It was something Paul did not want you to forget. So we're gonna look at it today, but before we do, I wanna start at the beginning of chapter two because in chapter two, verse one, the apostle Paul asked four rhetorical questions. In other words, the answer is obviously yes to all of them. So in verse one, he says, is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Well, yeah. Any comfort from his love? Yes. Any fellowship together in the spirit? Yes. Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Yes. So if that's true, Paul says, then what is it you need to do? And then he tells us in verse two, then, because of that, then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other. Agreeing wholeheartedly with each other. Loving one another. Working together with one mind and purpose. Don't be selfish, don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interest, but take an interest in others too. The secret sauce to the success of Christianity, the secret sauce 
to a healthy relationship with Jesus Christ is a spirit of unity. Please get that. Because all the time people say, well, what is the secret to success in Christianity? It is unity in the body of Christ. It's why in John chapter 17, Jesus prayed what we call the priestly prayer. He's praying to his father and he says, Father, make them one as you and I are one. Make them one as you and I are one because that's the secret to the success of a relationship with Christ and to Christianity. I know that's easier said than done. We get our feelings hurt so easy and instead of thinking the best of somebody, what do we do? We think the worst and when someone does us wrong, oh my gosh, we carry those hurts to the end of the age. But Paul wants us to imagine what it would be like if we worked together in one mind and purpose. What would it be like if every one of us today drew a line in the sand and we said, okay, from here on out, I don't care if they hurt my feelings. I don't care if they say something that I kind of take wrong. We're on the same page, serving the same God, and I'm making up my mind we are going to be together. The church, the New Testament church in Acts chapter two exploded in growth. And if you wonder why, just read Acts chapter two and you'll see, because over and over again, it says they were together. They were together, one mind and one spirit. When that happens, the church of Jesus Christ explodes. And so we have to make up our mind to be in unity. If we weren't, if we make up our mind, we're not gonna be selfish and try to impress everyone. If we're humble, and, not, and think of others as better than ourselves. Christians, listen, I'm just telling you, if we live that way, the church of Jesus Christ, the big C church would explode because the rest of the world would see it and say, man, I want that. That's what I've been longing for in my life, to see that kind of peace, to see that kind of joy. That's what I want to experience. You say, yeah, but Steve, is it even possible? Absolutely it's possible. It's what Christ modeled for us. That's why Paul, he tells us, he asks those questions, then he tells us how to get there, and then in verse five, he says this, you must have the same attitude that Jesus had. You gotta have the same attitude that Jesus had. What was the attitude Jesus had? A spirit of humility. So Paul is saying, that's what you need. You need that spirit of humility. Pride, listen to me guys, pride hurts the church. It destroys our witness. It keeps us from being together. It is pride that keeps us at odds with one another. It is pride that helps, that helps me to hang on to anger against a brother or sister. We need to break all pride. Pride goeth before a fall. We all need that spirit of humility. Then he gets into the song. He gets into the hymn in verse six. Because he's saying, this is what I need the church to remember. So we're gonna sing it, we're gonna memorize it, he says. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Paul's saying, this is important enough. We need to memorize it. I want it to be stuck in your head. 
I know, guys, this is hard. The theology of this is so hard for us to wrap our brains around. But Jesus was fully God, and yet he was fully man. But it tells us there that he emptied himself. Or in other words, he set aside his divine privileges. Theologians call this Christ's condescension. Christ's condescension, what does that mean? It means that he descended from a superior position as God, the creator of the universe, God Almighty. He he descended from a superior position as God to be a servant and to serve us. It's an interesting term, isn't it? If I were to say, you know, that guy's being really condescending, that's a negative remark. You think he's being rude, he's being patronizing. But condescension here is a different meaning than condescending. Condescension means to descend from a superior position, or in other words, to stoop down voluntarily, to stoop down graciously. Jesus Christ willingly and lovingly stooped down from being the creator of all things. Why? To serve humanity. Charles Spurgeon is a name that I'm sure you've heard of before. He was a 19th century a preacher, revival preacher, who frequently spoke about the condescension of Christ in his sermons and in his writings. And oftentimes when he spoke on this topic, he was speaking on this particular text, Philippians chapter two. Now, I don't wanna get down into the weeds, but the condescension, the condescension of Christ includes both the incarnation and the crucifixion. It's the whole package. And both demonstrate the immense humility of Christ. Not the humiliation, the humility of Christ. Look at verse eight again. He humbled himself. He humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. That's important because the Roman soldiers intended to humiliate Jesus at the crucifixion. But of course, we know that Jesus could have easily called 10,000 angels to come and pull him down off that cross, but instead, he willingly died on the cross. It said he humbled himself. And then at his birth, when when the God of creation takes on a body of flesh in order to bring heaven down to earth and dwell among his people. The writer of Psalms in chapter 113 says, for the Lord is high above the nations. His glory is higher than the heavens. Did you get that? His glory is higher than the heavens. Who can be compared with the Lord our God who is enthroned on high? He stoops to look down on heaven and on earth. Charles Spurgeon said, the condescension of Christ is a theme so vast that all eloquence is lost in its immensity. Friends, Christ is in such an exalted state, he has to stoop down just to look at what's in heaven while we have to look up to see heaven. So then how far did God stoop down to come to this earth as a baby? Well, it's hard to discuss it, it's hard to talk about it because to be honest, we can't even fathom it. It's beyond what our mind can grasp. In Psalms chapter eight, he says, when I look at the night sky and I see the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars you set in place, what are mere mortals that you should think about them, human beings that you should care for them. In other words, it's beyond what we can imagine. 
So the condescension of Christ, it's the entire package, the entire story, from the birth of Christ to the crucifixion. But at Christmas, we celebrate the first part of Christ's condescension, which is what? It's the incarnation. So for the last two weeks, CJ has been talking about the incarnation of Christ. If you were not here last week for last week's message, seriously, you need to go listen to it online. I told Sandy after we left last weekend, I said, they don't need me to speak next week. They need to just play his message again. And then if you didn't get it, play it again. Because I'm telling you, I've never heard a message more clear on how the incarnation is relevant to our lives today. This is not just an old story. This is a relevant story, the incarnation. It has to do with your life, where you're living and where you're at today. So again, I would encourage you to listen to it if you didn't and have your kids listen to it as well. But as a simple reminder, the incarnation means what? It means in the flesh. The theological term means the word became flesh. God became flesh. God took on human form. He came down to earth and he what? He became one of us. The creator became the creature. The one who hung the stars lay helpless in a manger. The one who we teach our children is so big and strong and mighty became so tiny, weak, and powerless. This powerful voice was reduced to a baby's cry. The king of the angels was made a little lower than the angels. The creator of time entered time. The one whose everlasting arms are underneath his people lay vulnerable in his mother's arms. Friends, hear me please. I just want us to try and understand the magnitude, the magnitude of the incarnation and what it means when we say God came near. What it means when we say God came down to earth. So then what was his purpose? That you and I might be brought to God that you and I might be redeemed, that we might be made rich spiritually. You know, Paul talks about that oftentimes, a passage that's misunderstood in 2 Corinthians that says, you know, the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty he could make you rich. We're talking about the incarnation. We're talking about your spiritual life. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners just like you and me. Friends, do we understand, guys, do we understand that one of the most amazing things about the Christian faith, it is the humility of God. You see, without God's incarnation, there would be no death and resurrection. If there was no death and resurrection, then my friends, there would be no salvation. The God of all creation, he stooped down. He became obedient or submissive to his father. Now, to be submissive, that's a word that's oftentimes in our, in our day and age misunderstood. Oftentimes when you do a marriage retreat or, or, or speak to couples on marriage, uh, this is often misunderstood. And you'll tell a guy, you'll tell a guy, you have a responsibility to be the spiritual leader of your home. You understand that? A lot of guys, well, I don't want it. It doesn't matter whether you want it. God's given it to you. You are to be the spiritual leader of your home. You will stand before God and answer how you directed your home spiritually. Ladies, it tells very clearly you are to be submissive to your husband. Well, a lot of times women are like, I am not being submissive to a man. Well, you have to understand the meaning of the word because the meaning of the word is pay close attention to. 
So what he's saying is, he's to be the spiritual leader, you're just supposed to pay close attention to him. He has a responsibility before God, and he's gonna answer to God for that. You just need to pay close attention to that spiritual leadership. That's what it means. Well, in Galatians 4, we see Christ's submission as a young Jewish boy when he fulfilled all the law's requirements. We know that he obeyed and was submissive to his earthly parents. We also know that he submitted to suffering. He didn't want to. Think about that, guys. He knew a lie, lie ahead of him. And when he's in the garden and he's praying to his heavenly father, what is he saying? He's saying, guys, if there's any way this cup can pass before me, please. In other words, if there's another way, can we do this differently? I, I don't want to go through all this. He prayed until there were great drops of blood, sweat pouring out of his scalp. That's pretty intense prayer. And Jesus is praying that because he didn't want to do it. But when it was all said and done, what did he do? He was obedient to his father. He was submissive to his father's plan. Guys, you see, this was all a part, this was all a part of his submission or his heart of being a servant. He endured the pain. He shed his blood. And of course, he ultimately died. All of it was a part of his humility, his condescension, his incarnation, and his submission. Okay, Steve, that, that, that it truly is amazing, but how should I respond? Well, Paul, what did he say in verse five? He told us in verse five, we must have the same attitude Jesus had. What was that attitude? It was an attitude of humility. Paul's saying, respond by getting rid of the pride in your life and taking on a spirit of humility and servanthood. So, I've got to decide, friends, to draw a line in the sand and say, you know what, I'm gonna to submit to God as well. You know, as of, as of Christmas 2023, that's the decision I'm making. That's the commitment I'm making. That from here on out, I'm gonna to submit to God's purpose and God's plan for my life. I'm gonna live in a spirit of unity, regardless if anybody offends me or not. I'm gonna live in that attitude of humility and servanthood. You know, the disciples didn't fully get this message in the beginning. Christ constantly talks to them about the importance of humility, and they just weren't getting it. Before his death, the disciples believed that one day that Jesus was gonna use his power to overthrow the Roman oppressors, the Roman government. They had a difficult time understanding that Jesus' power was a different kind of power than what the world thought of when they thought of power. Christ's power was not to elevate oneself, but it was a power to love, just as Jesus loved, and to serve just as Jesus served. But then after the resurrection, it was like, oh my goodness. Now they got it. It was a spiritual aha moment. They fully understood all the down-to-earth things Christ was doing when he walked the earth. And now Jesus, this is important for you to hear. This is another piece I want you to get today. And now Jesus wants you and me to become the salt of the earth. He makes that so very clear. Now according to, the, to dictionary.com, the salt of the earth means an individual or group considered as a representative of the best or noblest elements of society. So for someone to say, you know what, you're the salt of the earth, it's a compliment. It's also, not only is it a compliment, it's also an expectation. An expectation that Jesus Christ has for every one of you that call yourself a believer. Every one of us that call ourselves Christians, this is an expectation that Jesus has for us. So it's important to hear. In Matthew chapter five, he says, Jesus, he's standing on a hillside preaching one of the most famous sermons ever to be preached, one of the most important sermons to ever be preached. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. 
And he says, you are the salt of the earth. But what good is salt if it's lost its flavor? Can you make it salty again? It will be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. You are the light of the world like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. And in the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so, so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. When Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount, he declared that believers, Christians, had a responsibility or obligation to be the salt of the earth. And then he warned us that if we were not intentional about being the salt of the earth, we could lose our spiritual flavor. We could lose also our spiritual fervor, but we'll also we'll lose our spiritual flavor. And if we lose our spiritual flavor, then we're not fulfilling the calling of the great commission that every one of us have. Now in those days, salt was not only to enhance the flavor of meat, but it was also used as a preservative to reduce corruption of meat. In other words, if we emulate Jesus Christ by serving others in humility, then we're pointing people to a relationship with Jesus Christ. And of course, what will that do? That'll enhance their life. It'll give them a hope of eternal life. It'll give them a purpose for their life today. It will also grow the church, the big C church. It'll grow the church of the kingdom of God. But guys, if we're not sensitive about this calling or responsibility, if we're not intentional about being the salt of the earth, we will lose our spiritual flavor and we will not make any kind of difference if you're not being the salt of the earth in your neighborhood, you're not making a difference. If you're not being the salt of the earth in your workplace, you're not making a difference. With your family, you're not making a difference. It is vital. Jesus said if that's the case, if you're not being the salt of the earth, then we might as well be thrown out and trampled by man because we're not gonna change a thing. Friends, the scripture tells us that God knew you before you were ever in your mother's womb and that he has a purpose and he has a plan for your life. I have people all the time will say, Steve, I don't know what God's will is for my life. Can you help me to discover God's will or plan for my life? Listen, guys, I might not know the specific details of God's will for your life, but I do know, hear me, I do know the primary purpose of your life is to fulfill the Great Commission. I do know that the primary purpose for your life is to be the salt of the earth. So if you do that, listen, if you just do that, then you've started to fulfill God's will in your life. And then you'll begin to experience God. One of my favorite books of all time is by Warren Blackaby, Experiencing God, which the idea is, is that once we start being obedient to the Father, then just live in the experiences that God brings your way. That's how you're gonna know the will of God in your life. And in turn, you'll not lose your spiritual flavor. If you're not being the salt of the earth, you're missing God's best. You say, okay, so how do I do that? What is it that I need to do? Well, we already said that, and so if I could, let me go back and read it again. Verse two, Paul said, then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other agreeing with each other, loving one another, working together with one mind and purpose. Don't be selfish, 
Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourself. All this stuff takes intentionality. None of these things are gonna happen in your life just because you prayed a prayer to invite Jesus in. Christians, hear me. I'm thrilled to death that you invited Christ into your life. None of that will happen unless you make a decision, I want this to happen in my life. Basically, he's saying, you're living the life of a humble servant just as Christ did. Friends, that was an intentional decision Jesus made. It's gotta be an intentional decision that you make. Remember, I talked about this, wrote a book about it, that if you do something enough times, you create a habit. If you do something enough times, you create a spiritual discipline. It's not because your heart's right, oh, I'm a humble individual just because I have such a great heart. No, you're a humble individual because you practiced it. You're a humble individual because you were intentional about it and you did it enough times until it became second nature. You have a heart of a servant because you practiced it and you did it enough times, it became second nature for you. All throughout Jesus' time on earth, we see him serving others. He fed the crowds of hungry people. He healed the sick and he raised the dead. But one of the great examples, I think, is in the upper room and in story we call the Last Supper. The disciples had all been invited to dinner by Jesus and they arrived that night in the upper room Jesus has not gotten there yet, which is okay. They didn't think anything about it, but what did get their attention is there was no servant at the door. That was a big deal. In those days, that was the custom. You had to have a servant there to wash your feet and hands. Why? Well, the roads were dirt. The shoe style was sandals. Everybody wore sandals. The mode of transportation were horses, uh, uh, mules, and camels. The exhaust system got to be messy. And whenever it rained, it all mixed together and you're wearing sandals. So when you went into dinner somewhere, the tables weren't like we dine where we sit in a chair at a table. The tables were only eight inches off the ground. So when you dined in those days, you're leaning on one elbow. Your feet are in the face of the next guy and that guy's feet are in your face. You wanted to know there was a servant at the door washing his feet. This particular night, there was no servant. And you would think one of the disciples would have picked up the basin of water and said, well, I'll take care of that. But no one was willing to humble themselves and do that. They all felt it was beneath them. Then Jesus arrives. He arrives late. I believe he's intentionally late so that he could, he could see how they handled this particular circumstance. They're all talking. They don't notice that Jesus takes off his outer garment. He ties a towel around his waist and he takes a pitcher of water and he kneels down to wash their feet. In John chapter 13, it says, so he got up from the table, he took off his robe and he wrapped a towel around his waist. He poured water into a basin then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel he had around him. After washing their feet, he put on his robe again and sat down and asked, do you understand what I was doing? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right because that's what I am. And since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. I have given you an example. I've given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. I tell you the truth. Slaves are not greater than their master, nor is the messenger more important than the one who sends the message. Now that you know these things, God will bless you for doing it. 
If you read the chapters before this, before John 13, you'll see that Jesus was constantly talking to the disciples about the importance of humility, but they just were having a hard time understanding how valuable and important it is. Jesus gave us an example of what it means to be the salt of the earth, but when we neglect, listen, when we neglect serving others or we refuse to love or we refuse to forgive, we lose our spiritual flavor. Guys, if we wanna do anything significant for the kingdom of God, it's done with a servant's heart. To be a humble servant means to show care to other people. It's, it's keeping our eyes open, our hearts open. It's keeping our schedules open for divine opportunities to serve someone. Listen, friends, I know you're busy. Every one of you are busy. We're all busy. But no matter how busy you are, it's important to be open to the opportunities that God brings your way. Here's what I believe. I believe that God brings every single one of us divine appointments and opportunities every day of our life. But more times than not, we're so caught up in our own life that we miss it. I'm as guilty as anybody else. Or even when we sense a, a tap on the shoulder from the Holy Spirit, we, we, we brush it off because we're just busy. We're busy people. We're so busy, we're missing God. It might, not be, it might not be washing feet that he's asking you to do. It might just be helping down a brookside. It might just be feeding some hungry. It might just be something as simple as helping with sowo, serve one, worship one, where you just say, you know, it's not that big of a deal. I can stay in extra service and work in the nursery so that a mother can come and hear a gospel message uninterrupted. I can do that. It's, it's opportunities that come our way every single day. Seriously, friends, there's all kinds of easy ways you can serve if we'll just look for it. So if you're not feeling much like a servant this Christmas, I would challenge you to do four things. Number one, ask God to stretch your heart. Ask God to stretch your heart. Ask him to help you love those that you rub shoulders with each and every day. Because if we're honest, some of the people that we rub shoulders with each and every day are pretty unlovable. I mean, even now, there's names going through your head. There are people you're thinking about saying, oh, dear Lord, I don't wanna have to love him. But the reality is that's exactly who God wants you to love. And so I ask God, Lord, give me a love for them. I, I'm having a difficult time with this person. Give me a supernatural love for them. Every one of you know of people you could, you could love more this Christmas. Number two, decide to put the needs of others before your own. Help others even when it's not convenient. I know you're busy. Maybe there's a single mom here at church. Maybe there's a widow that lives down the street from where you're at that needs help. Maybe there's someone that doesn't attend church and a simple invite to a Christmas Eve service could make all the difference just having you sit with them. Maybe someone is hurting and just needs a listening ear. And guys, whatever you do, get your kids involved. Get your kids involved in blessing other people. It'll be huge in helping to shape a servant's heart in your child's life. And then number three, decide you're gonna be sensitive to the promptings of the Holy Spirit. Again, I think that's obvious. When he taps on your shoulder, listen. Don't ignore it, don't brush it off. Number four, decide to have a heart of gratitude for all that God's done for you. So this year, I mean, 
We need to have a heart of gratitude for God's humility, for for all that he's done for us, for his willingness to lay aside his rights as God. And yet, guys, when it comes right down to it, can I just say this? How can we be grateful for his humility, to really have a heart of gratitude for his humility, and then deal with others in ways that are full of pride, or or cling to our own rights, or continue to be stubborn with others, or continue to be selfish and self-centered, or continue to participate in sin. Charles Spurgeon said, the understanding of Christ's condescension should lead us all to deep gratitude, humility, and a transformed life. So this Christmas, let's ask God to create a clean heart in us, a humble heart, a heart of compassion and kindness, because hear me, my friends, what did the last part of that song say, that hymn say? One day, whether you believe in Christ or not, one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord.